In our study of Ezekiel, we've come to the 10th chapter. I encourage you to open your Bibles as we read from Ezekiel chapter 10. When we started this series, I anticipated that some of you might start saying, Pastor, you preach such negative sermons because the book of Ezekiel has some hard words. And I didn't write it. The Lord wrote it. And, um, but they are. There's times when there's difficult words. And the Lord has some hard things to say to his people. And again, here in Ezekiel chapter 10. And I looked. And there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, and he went, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of a barrel stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called, in my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. The cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Chebar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. When the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. 
And the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces, and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. The likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chebar, their appearance and their persons. They went, each went straight forward. So far, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. What event in the life of King David triggered great joy for him and for all the house of Israel? Do you recall, children, what event that was? It was when the Ark of the Covenant was brought up from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. For more than 50 years, the Ark had been neglected by the people of God. It had not been given the proper place of prominence in Israel. For more than a half a century, the tabernacle was missing its most important piece of furniture. Being a godly king, David wanted to restore true worship in the land. He wanted God to be worshipped in the proper manner. And so he assembled the people. And in the midst of a great celebration, the ark was brought to Jerusalem. We read in 2 Samuel 6 that David was so thrilled and filled with thanksgiving that he whirled about, jumped, and skipped like an excited child. He jumped, skipped, and whirled about because the God whom he loved and feared was going to symbolically dwell in Jerusalem. David understood the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the symbol of God's presence. It represented the very throne of God. It is thought that Psalm 24 was written by David specifically for this occasion. Psalm 24 seems to picture in poetic language that moment of arrival at the gates of the city of Zion. A magnificent procession came up to the gates of Jerusalem, and then a shout goes up, Psalm 24, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. The gates are commanded to lift up their heads. The doors of the citadel of Zion are to open high and wide. They are to make room for the King to enter. The King of glory has come up to Jerusalem. Psalm 24 says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and and lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. David. 
The great psalmist of Israel penned those words to celebrate the arrival of the king who had come to dwell in the midst of his people. On that memorable day, David and those with him lifted up their voices in praise, rejoicing that the sovereign Lord was with them. God's glory was revealed in Jerusalem. David rejoiced because of the presence of God, the glory of God. The king of glory who dwells between the cherubim was making his home in Jerusalem. Congregation, many years before David, the people of Israel had a terrible experience with respect to the Ark of the Covenant. In the days of Eli and Samuel, the ark had been captured by the uncircumcised Philistines. That was a very dark day for the nation of Israel. For Eli, the news of the captured ark was so devastating that he fell backward off his seat, broke his neck, and died. When Eli's daughter-in-law heard the news of the captured ark, she went into labor and bore a son. She herself died in childbirth, but the woman who was with her named the child, what? Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod, the glory has departed. The ark being taken by the hands of uncircumcised Philistines was a judgment of God upon Israel for her sin. God's presence was symbolically removed from Israel. His glory departed. Brothers and sisters, the mourning of the faithful at the time of Eli and the rejoicing of the faithful at the time of David were both on account of the glory of God. The mourning at the time of Eli was because the glory had departed. The rejoicing of David was because the king of glory was entering Zion. You see, the most treasured gift, the most treasured gift for God's people in the Old Testament was the glorious presence of God. The faithful in Israel longed for his nearness. We sing sometimes, don't we, from Psalm 73, to live apart from God is death. Tis good his face to seek. My refuge is the living God. His praise I long to speak. To live apart from God is death. The faithful of the Old Testament could not bear the thought of God's departure from their midst. David wrote in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David knew that only the living God could bring salvation. Only the living God could satisfy his heart. And therefore the word Ichabod was a horrible word. The glory has departed from Israel. Well, congregation, in our chapter for this afternoon, Ezekiel 10, some 400 years after David, we see the glory departing from the temple. This chapter can be summarized with that terrible word, Ichabod. 
Ichabod. In the previous two chapters, the Lord revealed to Ezekiel through a vision the apostasy that was prevalent in the city of Jerusalem. While living in captivity by the river Chebar in Babylon, the Lord revealed to Ezekiel the terrible idolatry of which the nation was guilty. In chapter 8, the Lord gave the prophet a guided tour of the temple and showed him that it was filled with abominations. The false gods of the nations were honored in God's sacred sanctuary. Then, in chapter 9, the Lord showed Ezekiel that he was going to punish his people so that there would be a great slaughter in Jerusalem. In the vision, the Lord summoned six executioners, six angels of destruction, told them to go through the city and kill. They were to utterly slay old and young men, maidens, little children, and women. The executioners were to have no pity. Before the slaughter began, the Lord spoke to a seventh angel and gave him an assignment different from that of the other six. The seventh angel appeared as a man clothed in linen with a writer's inkhorn at his side. The Lord told this man clothed in linen to go through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark, a mark on the foreheads of all believers who did not participate in the city's corruption. Those who were grieved by the sin of Judah were to receive God's mark. As the six executioners went out to kill, they were told to destroy everyone except those who bore the mark. They were to begin at God's sanctuary and move outward toward the city. They were to begin by executing the unfaithful leaders who led the people away from God's truth. Ezekiel stood and watched in horror. In horror, as the slaughter began before his eyes, he saw the six destroying warriors go forth swinging their battle axes. Now, as we approach chapter 10, presumably the killing is over and bodies are scattered throughout the temple court and throughout the city. The work of the six executioners is complete. As we focus on this chapter, I want us to consider first the duty of the man in linen in verses 1 through 8, and second, the departure of the glory of God in verses 9 through 22. First, the duty of the man in linen. As Ezekiel continued to observe the scene, we read in verse 1 that suddenly a sapphire-like throne appeared above the cherubim. And Ezekiel saw things that were very similar to his first vision of the glory of God. In chapter 1, you recall the very first chapter, Ezekiel saw God's throne chariot drawn by four heavenly creatures, cherubim. Above the heads of the cherubim was the firmament or the expanse, some kind of a vast platform. Above this firmament, over the heads of the cherubim, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire stone. Well, that is exactly what Ezekiel saw once again here. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 1. Verse 1. And I looked, 
And there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. It is from this sapphire-like throne that the Lord appears to speak. He addressed a man clothed in linen and told him in verse 2, go there to verse 2, to go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. We know from chapter 1 that there was a, a raging fire in the midst of the cherubim and it appeared as though God's chariot was made of fire. The man in linen was told to take some of the live coals of fire and scatter them over Jerusalem. Because of the sin of Judah, God called for fire to be poured out on the city. Brothers and sisters, the scattering of coals of fire over Jerusalem symbolized God's destructive wrath upon the city. Fire in Scripture is often a symbol of God's holy judgment against wickedness, right? For example, in Genesis 19, God rained fire and brimstone from the heavens on Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying the inhabitants of the land. The fire was God's judgment against the wicked. In this chapter, the scattering of coals by the man in linen is a symbol of God's judgment against Jerusalem. The city was going to be reduced to ashes. In this case, the Lord would not rain fire and brimstone from heaven as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Rather, the Lord would execute his purpose through the Babylonians. The city would be reduced to ashes by the Babylonian army. We know from 2 Kings chapter 25 that after Jerusalem was taken, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Burn the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem and all the houses of the great men he burned with fire. Jerusalem was reduced to a smoking heap of charred rubble. Under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar, the city was torched so that it was totally unrecognizable. All the beautiful structures went up in smoke and the glorious temple of Solomon was consumed by the flames. But congregation, we learn from this chapter that the city of Jerusalem was not really torched by Nebuchadnezzar, but by the Lord himself. Ultimately, the fire that destroyed Jerusalem was from the coals that came from the throne of God. Nebuchadnezzar and his army were only instruments in the hands of God to execute his judgments. In the spiritual realm, unseen by the human eye, the Lord sent forth his angel to destroy Jerusalem through Nebuchadnezzar. From a human point of view, it was Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. But from the scriptures, we know that it was the Lord himself. It was the coals of fire from between the wheels of God's chariot throne. In this vision, Ezekiel was given a glimpse behind the curtain. And he was granted a preview of Jerusalem's coming destruction by the fire of God. 
Now, in verses 3 through 5, Ezekiel provided a further description of what he saw at the temple. He saw the cherubim standing on the south side of the temple, and he saw a cloud filling the inner court. Then he saw the glory of the Lord going up from the cherub and pausing over the threshold of the temple. The house was filled with a cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And then verse 5 says that Ezekiel heard the sound of the wings of the cherubim, a great noise that could be heard in the outer court. It sounded like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Congregation, what's going on here? What's going on here? What do these things mean in verses 3 through 5? You'll recall from previous messages that when God created the angels, he created various classes. The cherubim were those whom God appointed to guard his holiness in the tabernacle and temple. It was the cherubim who overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. Cherubim were woven into the curtains and veil of the tabernacle and carved into the walls of the temple. In the Old Testament, there was always a very close association of the cherubim with the presence of God. Where the cherubim are, there is God. Where the cherubim are, there is God. We read in the Psalms of how God is associated with the cherubim. Psalm 18, verse 10, and God rode upon the cherub and flew. Psalm 80, verse 1, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Israelites understood that the presence of the cherubim indicated the presence of God. Therefore, when we read in verse 5 of the sound of the wings of the cherubim, we immediately realize that if the cherubim are moving, then God is moving as well. If the cherubim are preparing for flight, then God is preparing to depart. If the cherubim are about to leave the temple, then God is preparing to leave. However, before there is any further movement of the cherubim, we read in verse 6b that the man clothed in linen went out and stood beside the wheels of God's chariot throne. In verse 7, he received from the cherub coals of fire from between the wheels of the chariot, and he went out to fulfill his task. The man in linen departs, carrying the coals, and although he moves out of sight, the narrative implies that he has left the temple to carry out the task of scattering the burning coals upon the wicked city of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, the man in linen carrying the coals of fire is a reminder to us that our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. The city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground because of the sin of God's people. The temple was torched because they did not value the gospel, the message of salvation, which the temple proclaimed. They did not value the person and work of Christ, which the temple was a picture of. 
Because they turned away from Jesus Christ, the Lord burned their temple and torched the city. Brothers and sisters, hear this. If we do not treasure the message of salvation, if we do not value the gospel of Christ, make no mistake about it, we too will face the fiery wrath of God. If you reject His way of salvation, then you will face the fires of God's indignation for eternity. The tragedy of Jerusalem was that it possessed the living Word of God, but turned away from it. Congregation, don't turn away from the Word, from what you know is right. Young people, don't turn away from steadfast reliance on Jesus Christ, from that one way of salvation. Don't dismiss the one who endured God's fiery wrath for sinners on Calvary's cross. Jesus spoke of everlasting fire. The furnace of fire where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Fire that shall never be quenched. That is the destiny of all unrepentant covenant breakers. Yes, our God is a consuming fire. If you ignore Jesus, don't think that you can escape it. But then secondly, we want to go on from the duty of the man in linen to the departure of the glory of God. The departure of the glory of God. In verses 9 through 22, we find a description of God's chariot throne that is again very extremely similar to the first chapter of Ezekiel. The prophet saw four wheels by the cherubim. These four wheels are described, verse 10b, as a wheel in the middle of a wheel. I pointed out in our study of chapter 1 that we should understand the wheel within a wheel, not as a little wheel encased in a big wheel, but rather two wheels of the same size intersected at right angles. It's a kind of a, a gyroscopic design so that God's chariot throne is able to move about in all directions. Look at verse 10. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. The wheels within wheels highlight the fact that God's chariot throne can move about quickly and easily in all directions. It's, a, it's an omnidirectional chariot. Situated at the four sides of the four living creatures, the four cherubim. Each of the cherubim had four faces so that they can look in any direction at once. We saw from chapter 1 that they can see and move in all directions, and their speed was like that of lightning. We read in verse 16 that when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. Now, brothers and sisters, the point of these verses is not merely to repeat what was stated in chapter 1. 
The point is to show that this glorious chariot of the Lord is preparing to depart from the temple, carrying away the God of Israel. Please follow along at verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of God was moving, for God was departing from his temple. Brothers and sisters, of all the terrible judgments that we have seen in this book, this is by far the worst. Previous chapters spoke of destruction in Jerusalem, the sword, famine, terrible starvation, pestilence, a great slaughter, and fire that would consume the city. But of all these punishments from the Lord, this one is worst of all. God is abandoning the place where he was once worshipped and honored, abandoning his dwelling place. In a struggling marriage, isn't the saddest moment when one of the partners packs up and leaves, when one says, no more, I'm gone. How tragic it is when they can no longer live together. The husband says to his wife, I will no longer tolerate your adulterous, unfaithful ways. I'm leaving. I can no longer continue in this relationship or live in this house. I must pack my bags and depart. Congregation, that is, in effect, what the Lord was saying to Judah. He had blessed, cared, and provided for them, showered them with his love. But the people of Judah continued to be unfaithful. Unfaithful. They did not worship and serve him in purity, truth, and faithfulness, nor love him with a steadfast love. Therefore the Lord said, I'm leaving. I can no longer dwell with you. I can no longer tolerate your adulterous ways. Your sin is driving me away from my own house. In this chapter, we see the Lord departing from the temple and the city. The glory cloud of the Lord mounted the chariot and flew off to the east. God withdrew from his church. The glory of God mounted the chariot, headed toward the east gate of the temple, at the very edge of the temple complex, and prepared to depart. Brothers and sisters, what we witness here is a reversal of what took place at the dedication of the temple. Upon completion of the temple, Solomon called together the great assembly in order to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the completed structure. Once the Ark was in place, Scripture says what? It says that the glory cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
that after Solomon's prayer of dedication, it says that fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground and worshiped and praised the Lord. What an experience that must have been to be present at that dedication service, to see the manifestation of the glory of His presence. What a joy to know that the God of heaven and earth chose to localize His presence in Jerusalem. But now, congregation, in Ezekiel 10, we see a reversal of what took place at the dedication of the temple. Instead of the glory entering the temple, the glory departs. Instead of the glory cloud filling the, the Lord's house, the Lord leaves it empty. Do you understand why I say this is the worst possible punishment that could be imagined? For God to remove His glory means that the relationship is severed. The bond is broken. The communion between God and His people is fractured. He has taken His blessing from them. People of God, shouldn't this chapter serve as a warning to the church today? Ezekiel's vision of the departing glory warns us that there is a limit. There is a limit to what God will endure from His people. If we continue to rebel, He will remove His presence and take away His blessing. And when He removes His presence and takes away His blessing, the enemy takes control. Isn't this the warning that the risen Jesus gave to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? He said to the church in Ephesus, repent or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your lampstand. The Lord says, I will disqualify you as a church of Christ. You will cease to be a manifestation of the body of Christ on earth. Ichabod will be chiseled over your doors. The glory has departed. There is a limit to what God will endure from His people. If there is little sorrow for sin and no turning from it, God will remove His presence. Congregation, when was the last time you saw a sign on the front of a church building that read, Ichabod Presbyterian Church? or Ichabod Baptist Church, or Ichabod Reformed Church. Of course, you've never seen such a sign. No one would print Ichabod on the front of their building as a name for their church. And yet, that is the name that belongs to churches that have forsaken the Word of God. When churches depart from the authority of Scripture and do not repent, there comes a time when the Lord forsakes them Ichabod becomes their name. When churches become indifferent to sound doctrine, there comes a time when the Lord forsakes them. 
The Bible describes the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the church's task to uphold and proclaim the word of truth. Sound doctrine has always been and always will be the foremost mark of the true church. When churches become indifferent to sound doctrine, allowing people to deny the Bible as the infallible word, allowing people to deny the vicarious atonement, the resurrection, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, and so on, and allowing their members to embrace unbiblical views, then there comes a time when the Lord says, enough. Ichabod becomes their name. I once read that in the early 20s, some 1,200 ministers of the Presbyterian Church USA put their signatures to what was called the Auburn Affirmation. By doing so, they expressed the view that the doctrine of the iner inerrancy of Holy Scripture is harmful, that it does not matter whether or not a minister believes the virgin birth, Christ's bodily resurrection, the miracles of the Bible, or the satisfaction view of the atonement. By signing their names, they indicated that these things were not really that important. Brothers and sisters, when truth is not important in the church, and when church members do not know what truth is and do not care to know, then there comes a time when the Lord forsakes them. Ichabod becomes their name. Or when the church, or when the church becomes so worldly in its practices that there's very little distinction between the church and the world. When the church embraces the world's way of thinking and living, or the world's priorities, then there comes a time, if there is no repentance, that Ichabod becomes their name. Or when the church falls into the trap of formalism, going through the motions of church activity while there is little heart, life, or zeal for the worship of God and little concern for God's honor when there is little zeal for holiness, Christian growth, sanctification, or hunger and thirst for righteousness, then there comes a time, dear friends, if there's no repentance, that the Lord forsakes us. When the church does not celebrate the amazing salvation of Christ and what he has done in satisfying the wrath of God, when the church does not glory in the cross or proclaim the way of salvation, when the church has little interest in evangelism and missions, when the church becomes man-centered rather than God-centered, then there comes a time when he says, enough, Ichabod becomes our name. Brothers and sisters, Ezekiel's vision of the departing glory should teach us that if we are careless and unfaithful, the Lord will remove his presence and blessing from us and the enemy will take control. Let us then hold fast to his word and rejoice in the gospel, in the gospel, in Christ. Let us maintain sound doctrine and pursue godly living, living that is consistent with love for the gospel.
And let us pray that the Lord of the church would keep us near his side and warm our hearts to the things that are dear to him. Pray that the Lord will shape and mold us so that we will remain a church that faithfully, lovingly, and eagerly glorifies him. And then congregation, let us also thank and praise him that in Christ Jesus we may someday enter the heavenly Jerusalem and the heavenly temple where the glory of God will never depart. Through Christ Jesus, we may behold his glory forever. That is astonishing. Our Lord Jesus has ascended into the heavenly Jerusalem. The King of glory has entered the heavenly Zion. All his redeemed will dwell in his presence and his glory will never depart. Dear friends, will you bask in that glory? Or will you be banned from his loving presence because of your unbelief? Will you behold that glory or will you be cast away because of your iniquity? Isn't Ichabod, isn't Ichabod really a description of hell? Those in hell will have no experience of the loving, glorious presence and blessing of God. May the Lord spare each one of us from that terrible reality. Instead, through the cross and by his grace, may each one of you know the glory of his presence both now and in eternity. Embrace the gospel, believe the message of the cross, and you will dwell with him and he with you, never to depart. The king of glory. Let's pray. Lord, what an astonishing and wonderful thought. That in Christ Jesus, we may behold your glory. We may dwell in your presence without fear, without being consumed. And all because our Lord Jesus faced the fiery wrath, that holy indignation that we deserved. Lord, when we think of your people at the time of Ezekiel, who had so sadly departed from your truth, we realize that, Lord, we're also prone to wander We're prone to depart from that glorious message, that wonderful gospel that was depicted in the tabernacle and temple, picture of Christ. Lord, we today have that fuller revelation in the gospels and in the epistles 
But we too are so prone to wander. We pray that by your spirit you will, O Lord, stir our hearts so that we will glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we'll never become dull to that message. Fill our hearts, Lord, with praise, gratitude, humility, great love. That because of Christ, we may behold your glory forever. That, Lord, your glory will never depart. We pray, Lord, that none of us here would be banned from your loving presence because of our unbelief. Lord, that rather we will behold your glory stand before you in awe and wonder, overwhelming love and gratitude. So, Lord, we worship you, the King of glory. We ask that you'll receive our praises as we conclude. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.